If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Canteen dining conjures up visions of plastic trays, hard benches and bowls of beige slop. But in the Second World War, British punters flocked to an idealistic establishment called the British Restaurant. For good food, good prices and good company. Professor Bryce Evans of Liverpool Hope University researches the history of communal eating in Britain and he told me more about why many thought that state-run canteens would be the future of British dining. What was a British restaurant? A British restaurant was a big communal dining centre where you could be fed cheaply yet nutritiously and you could eat with your fellows. Lovely. So if me and you had turned up to dine at our local British restaurant in the Second World War, what would we have encountered? Well, firstly, to do that, we've got to go into the sort of slightly longer history about British public feeding. So we've got to go back into the Victorian period, really, and the period after the new poor law. If if we think of Charles Dickens and, uh, you know, please, sir, can I have some more Oliver Twist? That's indicative of the fact that the British state's comfort zone really was always institutional feeding. 
and feeding the very poor. So it was always something that was done chiefly in institutions, by which I mean prisons, workhouses, that kind of thing. I think we get a shift in both world wars. So even before we come to the British restaurant in World War II, you have its predecessor in World War I called the National Kitchen. And these were specifically designed to not just be focused at the very poor, but to be places that were attractive to everybody, where everyone from no matter what class or social background would want to go and eat. So they were supposed to be bringing the notion of eating out to the masses, and most working class people had never eaten out before. But because they were designed with that specific purpose of being attractive places to go, rather than shameful uh, places to go, or rather than places that were just to do with charity, soup kitchens, that kind of thing, they were specifically designed to be really attractive. So that principle, I think, is quite admirable in World War II with the British restaurant. They would have been clean, that there was a real premium placed on cleanliness. They got specific designers in to design murals, uh, uh, even colour experts, so-called, so multicoloured chairs, that kind of thing, which doesn't sound that amazing these days. But you're talking about flowers, tablecloths, uh, knives and forks. In, in short, really, that this was a nice place to go. It, it was like going to a restaurant, music frequently in these places. So they're specifically designed with that purpose in mind to be attractive places for all. Mm, because I think... When a lot of listeners hear the phrase public feeding or the word canteens, they're probably going to have quite a strong sensory reaction to that. It's going to bring back memories and they might not necessarily be good ones. But what you're saying is they were really trying to get away from that image and do something different here. Absolutely. Well, you're right, Ellie. Public feeding has always had an image problem because we think of it as grindingly institutional school dinners, wet trays, the eternal smell of cabbage waiting in line with your, your tray, that kind of thing. And in some, you know, in the 20th century, there are examples of that. Social eating was big in communist uh, Russia and the Soviet Union, and it does have some of those aspects. You know, the Stalinist incarnation of social eating was very much like that. But there was big, big efforts in Britain to, to make it quite enjoyable and fun. I mean, I think one of the image problems that it has is perhaps the name itself. And these were originally designed as communal feeding centres. That's what the Ministry of Food in that sort of grindingly sort of civil service way wanted to call them. And Winston Churchill, war wartime prime minister, quite rightly said, no, we'll call them British restaurants. People look forward to going to a restaurant. No one looks forward to the Dickensian misery implied by a communal feeding centre. So there was a lot in the name there. Um, I think the image problem as well persisted, I have to say, post-war when George Orwell writes 1984 and you've got the very famous canteen scene and he, he based the canteen for that on the BBC canteen, which was actually, I have to, a bone to pick with Orwell, the BBC canteen in the world was a great place to eat. Workplace canteens were fabulous places to eat. We've kind of lost that culture. But Orwell's sort of nightmarish dystopian vision of miserable proles having, you know, beige kind of slop doled out to them. This adds to the image problem that we have of, of uh, sort of communal dining. But actually, when you look at the history, it's, a, it's actually a lot more attractive and, you know, a, a nice place to be a lot of the time. So as you say, there are precedents before the Second World War. But if we look at the Second World War particularly and the establishment of the British restaurant, what were the ideas behind it? Why was it necessary or desirable? There's long trends here, you know, in terms of the British 20th century. The spirit of reforming municipal liberalism is one, and these were run at a local level by municipalities, lo you know, local councils. 
traditions of socialism, of course, coming through. There's a strong female ethic as well. You know, before we get to the British restaurant, female volunteerism has been a big thing. And feminism as well. You know, Sylvia Pankhurst, famous suffragette, she really pioneers a lot of the First World War uh, communal dining ventures. So all these trends are leading into and informing the, the World War II model. But specifically, I think we come to the, the interwar period in 1936 and William Beveridge, who a lot of British people would be familiar with as the sort of uh, architect in many ways of the welfare state. William Beveridge uh, writes a memo about how feeding will work in, in, a, in a total war situation which everybody sort of anticipated was coming. And the horrible thing that Beveridge quite rightly noted in 36 was that you're going to have big aerial destruction. You're going to have mass bombing of civilian populations. And of course, that comes true in you know, quite a terrible way, of course, with the Blitz in, in Britain in World War II, especially the destruction of Coventry by the Luftwaffe in um, November 1940. So the idea of communal dining had to contend with that. You know, a lot, of, a lot of this comes back to the rationing system in Britain. The rationing system was built around the local grocer. But what happens when cities are obliterated and the grocer doesn't exist anymore? You're in a situation of essentially emergency social eating, people coming together to eat, to, to be kept alive effectively. It's all very apocalyptic, actually, really, for all the niceties surrounding it, for all the civilizational aspects. There was that concern that would be the character of it. So those concerns about the nature of warfare and also morale, you know, to keep up morale, to keep people together, uh, to, to give them something to look forward to, because, of course, the Russian, Russian system was a brilliant system, but, um, you know, it, it was on a coupon basis. The, the attraction for a British restaurant is you're getting meals cooked for you that are off the ration, which is something to look forward to. It's, you know, it's an occasion to go and eat out. And just to pick up on a thread you mentioned there, um, feminism. So how was this a feminist project? How could it be interpreted as that? Well, in terms of its origins in World War One, effectively, um, as is so often the case in history, they were started by working class women to cope with price inflation in the big cities in World War One, and then the British state sort of comes in as a big juggernaut, you know, in a sort of very patrician manner, and just takes the model and renames it, rebrands it patriotically, a national kitchen, similar to World War Two, a British restaurant. So you've always got the nationalistic morale purpose behind it. But we have to give credit to the fact that a lot of the origins of this were from women. In fact, some of the characters associated with them in the Second World War were women, one of whom, Florence Horsberg, a millionaire uh, Jewish emigre from Tsarist Russia, a really colourful character who uh, in later life um, exposed some of the communist spy rings um, in, in Britain at the time. But Florence Horsberg was instrumental in revolutionising the, 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 can the work canteens in Marks and Spencer, a, a very famous British high street brand, Marks and Spencer, a, a Jewish firm originally. And she went in there and revolutionised the work canteens so that they'd be cheap and nutritious for workers. And she takes the same ethic to World War II. She writes, I have to say, quite a self-serving memoir in which she, she says that she walks into the offices of the Ministry of Food in Whitehall in, you know, in her mink coat. She, it, to, to use her terminology, she penetrated the bastion of government and said, look, you need to institute social eating schemes in the East End of London where people have been bombed out, or she said people will tear this place to bits. Now, slightly, that, that's slightly sort of overdone, but to give her her due, a lot of the ethic for, for, for getting these things done was coming from her. And it had always been that way. Female volunteerism, whether it was from working class women or very upper class, well-meaning ladies, had always been part of social eating. Another character who I'm sure British listeners will be familiar with, Barbara Cartland, famous novelist, very sort of upper class 
novelists talk, you know, would write about the luxury of the big house and lovely food in the big house and the big occasion. So again, these are women coming from the, the social elite who nonetheless, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel in this big effort during the war to get people eating together and to get people eating well. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. And I guess this is a question about resource and labor as well, right? So that if you have a hundred homes, each of them cooking their own dinner, and at this point that would primarily be in women's labor, if you can save all of that labor by just having, say, 10 people cook for a hundred, that's a lot of extra time that people could be doing things like war work, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing how, you know, emergency conditions like war really focus people on sort of natural economies like this. So it's all about economies of scale conserving fuel, conserving food, getting people well-fed, but getting them to eat together. And of course, it makes perfect sense when you're in the conditions, you know, of a straightened uh, wartime uh, economy. So we're talking about British restaurants here, but but social eating, which really has been forgotten, the ration book grabs all the headlines. But we've got to remember that social eating was seen in many different, there were places called emergency feeding centres, which were for the immediate aftermath of bombing raids. There were um, dock canteens, work canteens, industrial canteens, public feeding on, under whatever umbrella really was massive in World War II. And effectively, you've got a bloated state in World War II, where, which is taking on responsibility for all these venues, whether they're dock canteens, evacuee feeding centres, air raid canteens, canteens based in the London underground. It all adds up to, to the fact that we've forgotten that there was a lot of social eating going on uh, that, that wasn't to do with the ration, as successful as the ration was. 
So let's talk now a little bit about the food that you might get in some of these places. Obviously, each one was different and they were locally run. But what kind of meals might you expect? How important was this as a nutritional project or was it more just an economic one? Well, we've got to remember that nutritional science has come a long way uh, since the First World War. And, you know, you've got much better understanding of the role of vitamins and minerals in well-being, in nutritional well-being, and also the link between diet and disease, um, especially infectious diseases uh, like tuberculosis, which any wartime government is, is very aware of. So the medical and nutritional understanding has really improved in the interwar period. And so you've got a lot of very enthusiastic nutritionists and nutritional scientists at the Ministry of Food who, in their typical way, want to get everybody eating terribly healthily. Uh, They really want everyone, whether they've been bombed out or whether they're going to a British restaurant, to be eating a good, healthy vegetable stew. There's a guy called Jack Drummond, a very, very prominent uh, nutritional reformer, who wants everybody eating something called the Oslo Breakfast um, which is about as uh, as appetizing as it sounds. It's a sort of Scandinavian continental breakfast. Now, if you've just been bombed out of your house or if you've had a hard you know, week of war work, people are working really long days. It quickly becomes apparent to them. People just want to eat a sausage roll uh, or a fish and chips, something quite unhealthy, but comfort food. It's comfort food, really. So these sort of grand plans of the nutritional reformers for everybody eating terribly healthy based on leafy green veggie and, and you know uh, sort of very nice Scandinavian nutritious breakfast doesn't really come off they've got to temper those designs with the popular appetites of the British public really it's um you, you'll hear a sort of older generation of British people talking about sort of meat and two veg and that's what it would have been like so you've got a lot of veg there good leafy veg root veg about a you know a third to two thirds of your plate might be veg or, or, or potatoes, but then you've maybe got a pie as well. I'd say good sort of stodgy food, but with a good complement of, of vegetables there. It is nutritious stuff, uh, and and of course, like you said before, that ties into the need for people to be fed well, carrying out war work, well fed to be carrying out demanding work. So you'd get a good hearty dinner then, but how much would it set you back? I wonder if you could put the price of British restaurants in a bit of context for us. Was it affordable for pretty much everyone? It was affordable. I mean, sometimes it's um, not terribly productive to talk about prices in, in a historical moment because... It's difficult in terms of building in inflation, how that corresponds to today. But they would have been broadly affordable. You could get a meal for a price as low as a shilling, which, again, is is, is not a lot. I'm not, I'm not going to say how much that is in today's money because these comparisons never work, but that's broadly affordable. And that speaks to the fact that these places had to rely on footfall. There had to be a lot of people through the door for them to break even, and they were supposed to break even. They're run by local councils along business lines. They get a grant from central government along business lines. They have to turn over a profit. So it is it is cheap food, it's nutritious food, but you've got to have the footfall through the door. But they, they calculate that even 100 people through the door a day would, would mean the place would break even. I think a lot of people might not have heard of the British restaurants, but can you give us a sense of how ubiquitous they were? How often did people go and how many outlets were there across the UK? They would have been everywhere. They would have been on every high street. And I I do make the comparison um, that in the article that there was roughly two and a half thousand of these at their peak. And we've roughly half that number of McDonald's, for example, in the UK at the moment. Now, if you think how you see that yellow M pretty much everywhere, if you go to any town or city, you'll see that. That gives you an idea that the British restaurant would have been twice as commonly cited. You know, they would have been big sites on high streets, which does tie into one of the uncomfortable aspects 
behind them. Uh, you know, if you're a private retailer, if you're trying to run a restaurant, and then suddenly, with all the restrictions of wartime, regards price as well and supply, and then suddenly, effectively, the state plonks down this massive restaurant serving hundreds of people, sometimes thousands a day, on your doorstep, you're not going to be very happy. So it took a sort of careful collaboration between private enterprise and the state, which didn't work very well in World War One. By the time we get to World War Two, where you've got a much more expanded state and where the state is taking on private experts, it works a lot better. I mean, the guy who's the Minister of Food in Britain in World War Two, Lord Walton, he was a private read. He's coming from a private retail background. A lot of the propaganda around food is, is designed by people who've worked in the private food, retail and advertising arena. So it's actually quite a slick and well-managed and well-marketed operation. But you've got this aspect, especially when we come towards the end of the war, where the private retail trade is saying, hang on a minute, this, this just isn't fair. Um, you know, this is state monopoly, effectively. So far, it sounds pretty great. There's flowers, everything's beautifully coloured, the food is hearty, it's filling, it's comfort food. Is that the general response that it got from the public or was anyone a bit more sniffy about it? I think one of the problems we have in, in this country is sometimes we're a little bit too rose-tinted and nostalgic about World War II. So I certainly wouldn't want to go down that rabbit hole. And yeah, you read accounts and accounts vary. Now, one of the really interesting things the British government does in World War II is undertake a survey called Mass Observation, where it just got ordinary people to sign up to essentially snoop about and write a diary about what was going on at the time. And mass observation is notorious for this in terms of it's very subjective. So you get some of the accounts in mass observation of these places, usually written by women diarists, actually. Uh, and some of them say, this is wonderful. You know, this is the first time I've ever eaten out um, as, a, as a working class person. This is just great stuff. I'm very happy with the food. And then, of course, you get other diary accounts which say oh, it was absolutely awful. I had indigestion. It gave me terrible wind and all this kind of stuff. So very subjective accounts there. There's a 1942 summary of all the mass observation accounts. And it, it says that 96% of them are positive. Now, you have to take that with a pinch of salt, of course. Um, public dining did have its detractors. It, it always had had its detractors. There was a lot of more conservative voices who thought that this was destroying the fabric of civilization. You know, the nice thing about family life is eating a home-cooked meal. And a lot of people thought that this was this horrible dystopian Orwellian future where destroying not just the place of the woman in the home, but also the place of the lovely home-cooked meal. You get a few writers it's quite interesting, actually. You'd imagine that people on the left might support this kind of thing more than people on the right. But it's very mixed, you know. You, there's one writer, Francis Partridge, who's part of the quite sort of liberal bohemian Bloomsbury set who were quite lefty at this time. And she writes about visiting a British restaurant. She said it's horrible. She said it's an elephant house. It's full of beige slop eaten by beige people. It's horrific in its scale and the people that are eating there. So, it, of course, it was a mixed bag. Of course, it was a mixed bag, yeah. But I guess that an important part of the success for a lot of people in this was this idealistic vision behind it. How important do you think it was that there was this attempt to make canteens, as the Ministry of Food called them, centres of civilization rather than just a practical solution to, to a practical issue? Yeah, I think that's really significant. And of course, you know, these days it looks... Uh, terribly stuffy the, the idea that you know we're going to we're going to improve the lives of, of of the unwashed masses by getting them you know eating well using a knife and fork and sitting down to eat in a civilized manner at the same time I do think it's quite revolutionary because most people these days everyone's you know even people who are very poor within society most people would have eaten out back then 
eating out really was an upper middle class and upper class thing. So they were revolutionary and I can't help but identify with, you know, some of the, the aspirations are really, really too lofty. They think that this is the future of diet. Nobody's going to eat a private meal anymore. Everyone's going to do this. It just makes sense. And of course, that was never, never realized. But I think what you have in Britain in World War II, again, without wanting to be nostalgic, because they've Britain's been through this experience in World War One, you know, 20, 25 years previously, there is a fine tuning of the relation here. And I think that comes through in the sense that for every over-enthusiastic food reformer and nutritionist at the Ministry of Food, every utopian who thought this was the future of dining, you had more moderate people reining it in. And I think that this is encapsulated more than anything in the interaction between Lord Walton and Winston Churchill. So Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, Lord Walton, his Minister of Food. And Walton is coming from quite a Puritan religious background. He's been raised in quite a sort of I'd say quite bleak, Unitarian, fairly impoverished background in Manchester. He's actually, as a, as a child, a neighbour of theirs, starved to death. Um, he's come from quite a bleak background. Churchill, of course, is coming from a completely different social class. Churchill is a great Epicurean. You know, he starts every day with, with an alcoholic drink and really enjoys his food. And they famously launched Walton Pie, which again was one of these very healthy but unappetising wartime pies turnip-based pie, essentially. And famously, they launched it in the Savoy Grill in London. And uh, Churchill actually, defying all the propaganda, sends his back and orders the beef instead. And Walton is sort of tearing his hair out. But it's quite interesting because you've got that symbiosis between these sort of radical and sometimes austere sort of utopian voices with people who, who are saying, well, look, this has to appeal to popular tastes. You have to moderate it to popular tastes. Churchill being a great example of that, you know, in terms of the name. And so I think it actually kind of works quite well. It doesn't, of course, become the future of dining. Um, it, it, it dies out, dies out fairly slowly. It lasts through the rationing period right into the 50s, some of these sites into the 60s and 70s. But by the time we get to certainly the 70s, 80s and onwards, social eating has become a bit passe, a bit Orwellian, and the sort of utopia certainly hasn't been reached why do you think that is? Why do you think that this idea of communal dining did die out? I think it's to, to do with changes in society. I think consumer capitalism shifts. The supermarket comes in post-war, eating out in terms of different cuisines with, with post-war immigration to Britain, going for an Indian, an Italian, a Chinese becomes more of the norm. I also think it's to do with political transitions. You know, in, in other countries, um, the, the, the work canteen, you know, in Sweden, for example, eating at work is a really, really big thing. In Germany, eating at work, sharing the common table, worker and boss, still remains to this day a, quite a big thing. In Britain, obviously, transitions, you look at the 80s, Thatcherism, where there's a turn towards more privatised and individual modes of consumption. And the idea of sort of eating with strangers becomes something that's associated with, with Soviet communism and is sort of, why would you want to do that in this great individualist future? So... I think there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the nature shifts in the nature of society, economics and politics in Britain um, do account for that change. But I think perhaps in the last 10, 12 years with, with the return in some ways of, you know, post-financial crash and currently of economic problems, austerity, you've seen actually a quiet return of social eating as, as a bit of a phenomenon, actually, alongside the food bank uh, in Britain. 
I wonder if I could ask you a bit more about that. So as you say, Britain is, of course, dealing with the cost of living crisis at the moment. And in 2022, the Trussell Trust reported an 81% increase in usage of its food banks over the last five years. So do you think that we should be looking again at the British restaurants and seeing if there were any lessons that we could take from that scheme? I do. I think it's very bad practice for a historian to sort of be a, an evangelist for things and try, you know, and say, you must do this. History shows you must do this. But bizarrely, you know, during COVID, we did have the return the return of a form of state subsidised public dining, which was the eat out to help out scheme. It was a little bit different, but I never really thought I'd see, you know, state subsidised dining come back, which it did actually during COVID only a couple of years ago. And I think that shows these things were born originally out of price inflation and communities trying to feed themselves as prices were were rocketing and wages weren't keeping up. And we've got in some ways, a sim- I don't want to make a direct analogy, but there's a similar situation with the current problems. And so the food bank, I don't think, shares a lot of the characteristics of the British restaurant. I think it's a, it's a different thing. It's not a sort of social experience. But there are a lot of voluntary efforts today, which are effectively communal cafes, social eating. And I think these things are born of necessity, as they were uh, in history, you know, in World War One and World War Two, they they grew out of necessity in working class communities, and you're probably seeing something of a return today. I mean, I actually have spoken to the government this week, to Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, who are thinking about the possibility of introducing something like this, some kind of state-backed franchise. And the government's food czar at the moment, who's a, a private restaurateur who advises and backs this idea. So maybe social eating British restaurants haven't quite seen their day, uh, but certainly we're talking about vastly, vastly different contexts, of course. That was Bryce Evans, Professor of Modern World History at Liverpool Hope University. If you'd like to read a feature that Bryce has written on British restaurants, you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.